Hi, I'm Clemmie Telford and it's time to get open and get honest. Each week, I interview a guest about a topic that we, as a society, often shy away from. From sex lives to salaries, life and death, religion and real bodies, no subject is off the table. Welcome to Honestly, the podcast. This week's episode is a little more gritty. It's one that I've been wanting to do for some time since the guest wrote a blog post for Mother Rawlist two years ago that has been read approximately 700,000 times in which she documented the details of her postpartum psychosis. I first met Laura Dockrell and her partner, Hugo White, when we were both heavily pregnant with her babies, Greta and Jet, who were due days after each other. In the weeks that followed, as I knew that Laura was reaching induction date, I kept waiting to hear from her and waiting to hear from her. And as time went by, I became more and more worried. And it seems that my instincts were right, because Laura was having a pretty rough time of it. Not only did she have a traumatic birth, it led to mania, delusions, paranoia, anxiety, and eventually spiralled into postpartum psychosis. Hello there, Laura. <laughs> Hi, Clemmie. <laughs> How are you? Well, I've got a sty. And my the book's been out for n- nearly a week tomorrow. So actually, I am feeling so much better than what I anticipated. Actually, in a sort of way, lockdown has helped, I think, because it's kept me really safe and meant that I've been forced to be with Hugo and Jet in this time, which actually is the safest place probably for me to be rather than darting around the UK. I'm just making jets scrambled eggs and that just feels really safe there's something really grounding about that yeah because ordinarily you'd be on some whistle stop book tour now i imagine exactly and we were meant to be on bbc breakfast which i was i won't won't lie i was worried about that would have been a big deal anyway plus the nature of what we were talking about and getting my words right and making sure i wasn't going to offend anybody and what was i going to wear and then all the kind of uh, the support has been amazing, but also as we were just talking about before we pressed record, but telling the story and asking for stories back is overwhelming. And I think listening to these stories, keeping this conversation going, but doing it from the safety of my own house is actually probably the best place for me to be. As you know, I usually start with a quick fire round. So we're just going to do that to lighten the mood a bit and then we'll probably get quite deep quite quickly. So sure. on a scale of one to 10, how fun are you? Uh, right now. <laughs> really fun with right the sky. Now. Very weird story, but once a woman that I met decided to make me a necklace out of tiny things, oh. and it was really amazing, tiny plastic things, tiny glasses, tiny globes, tiny, like doll's housey things, and it's amazing, I love it, and it lives on my bookshelf. And But it's kind of been... You know, over time, it's just got dust and other things have moved in front of it. Anyway, Jet's got like a little fire engine set and the the necklace has two fire baby sized fire helmets on it. And I just was remembered and plucked them off the bookshelf and put them in Jet's fire engine and made his absolute day. And so actually in the last before I spoke to you, I was really fun. I was like 10 out of 10 fun because I was like, I've just out of nowhere plucked two miniature sized fire engine (laughs) helmets out of the air. You have that kind of like moment where you, it's like existential where you zoom out of your own self and you're like, oh my God, I am being fun. I'm being the mother I always knew I could be. And then you go too far and you go, maybe I should just do this all day long and only devote myself to playing. That's what I'm going to be now, a player. And then after one second, you find yourself just scrolling on your phone again or eating or being normal and you're like, oh yeah, no, it really wears off so quick. Yeah, you can't, you can't sustain it. 
can't play all the time because we've got other stuff in our head. But we just have to hope that the bits that they remember are those really fun bits. I I like might say it now, like, you know, I'm playing with you right now. Can you you log it? (laughs) Mummy's playing with you. So that's that. (laughs) (laughs) On a scale of one to ten, how popular are you? Oh, God, I'm not popular now. But um, everything's not good. Uh, oh, popular. No, because all I'm doing is banging on about postpartum psychosis. I've lost so many friends because of it. All I do is banging on about it. Uh, Friends that are just like, I can tell they're just like, eyeball roll, here I go again. Um, I'm like the town crier of postpartum psychosis. So... I know. If you want to hear about that, then I'm 10 out of 10. But if you just want to talk about um, normal TV, then no, 1 out of 10. But you know what? I have this really similar to you. I talk about heavy stuff and I'm like, oh, do people hate that? But I, I like talking about the heavy stuff. I like having fun too. It's not, and you don't need to apologise for that, do you? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm, I'm trying at the moment. I haven't got exactly right yet, but I'm trying to write like a, a Add a children's version of what I've just done mm. uh, for ad- uh, what I've done for adults, but a children's version of not exactly being as explicit or graphic of what happened to me personally, but just exactly as you're saying. And I think my whole message, what I'm trying to say, is like it is scarier to not know about this stuff. It like that's what I wish that I did, was not fiddling around with a protractor at school and someone had gone there might be a point in your life where you might lose mm. your brain for not and it won't be your fault so can you remember that and hold on to that because I didn't know that mm. and, and I had to find out kind of the hard way um I agree with you and and actually this is the best thing about well there's so many I could write a list forever of all the great things that have happened to me because of my illness and how it's informed me but um one of them is death of small talk which is just mm. um I've been set free from small talk and if I want anyone to go away out of my vicinity immediately I just bring up <laughs> suicide and off they go <laughs> and you know when you've got a baby a little ones anyway you're kind of always having a underscore of small talk anyway mm. like it's just about primal have you eaten have you seen mm. that kind of thing that when you do have an adult conversation you're gagging to talk about actual real life stuff and you and you're gagging for that relatability like someone say yes that's okay to feel like that what is your favorite color you know what my favorite color mm, is and it sparkles so and yours is pink mine is pink yeah it is pink and i've I sometimes look at pink and, and can't understand why everyone doesn't love it. Do you know, I only listen to Absolute Radio because I'm in the past and I like to pretend I'm 12 and everything's safe. But I listened to them and they were talking about all the weddings that have had to be cancelled at the moment. And one was, um, this woman was getting married to a chandelier. and um, Yeah, and that she had to cancel her wedding to the chandelier. And then I was describing this to my partner, Hugo, about how she felt about the chandelier and um, why she decided to marry it and it was because the chandelier gave her clarity and made her calm and for a second I was like I can totally see that, I get it. how the chandelier would make her feel like that and then I was for a second I was like I need to get a chandelier <laughs> absolutely bonkers Laura We've got, there's got to be a line where you like if you talk about you can't marry you can't marry a chandelier you can but really I know that you can you really like a pink. bunk I feel like that about sparkles. When I see sparkles or glitter, I just feel a real sense of like um, just 
excitement and oh there's cert- there's a certain I mean there's an amazing novel by Maggie Nelson called Blue It's mm. which is just a love letter to the colour blue and I just um, I get that like I do feel like that sometimes with turquoise I'm like I just could look at it forever so I get that with pink when you look at it and you're like how does no- everyone else not in love with this <laughs> it's really fit to you pink's really fit it's so weird isn't it what does it mean I'm going to read that book I'm really interested in that oh it's amazing you'll love it you'll love it well I mean we could just do an episode just on colours maybe I should it's more of an interesting subject than I realised what star (laughs) sign are you I'm Gemini which doesn't help it when you have a psychotic episode does it no people are like oh yeah that'll be a star (laughs) sign that'll be a star sign of course I, I am interested in all that stuff, but I've had to really kill Shut it. Shut out the noise. Of, exactly. This is interesting. I was talking to my sister about um, people who do psychedelic therapy, you know, when you take mushrooms to and then have a, ther- a therapeutic sure. session. And I just said, I absolutely am fascinated by that, but couldn't do it because I don't trust my mind enough. I think if you're someone who's got a kind of level mind, you can push yourself to that place. But if your mind is already on the edge, I, I just... It terrifies me. I was listening to um, Russell Brown and Ricky Gervais's podcast. Oh, I need the other to day. listen to that. Oh, I just love them both. Oh, me too. Um, <laughs> and I feel like both of them have got the balance really right of spirituality and stoicism. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of, re- it's just really interesting. And that's that's kind of where I, um, you know, that's where I look forward to becoming. But those things don't come. Without trauma, I don't believe. I don't mm. think you don't get to that place unless you've had to experience something tough. But in that, Russell Brand says it's real shame that he started on the drug so young because he can't do any of the opiums or you know mm. any of that stuff now to find out that gets that new level because he he's an addict so he can't. But I just found that really interesting because I'm exactly the same as you. I'm so terrified of it. I don't. I think why would you? All I'm trying to do is is remain on a level head. I the idea of an altered state of mind. No, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I don't drink and I definitely don't have caffeine after four o'clock. So probably exactly take, same o- as me, Chloe. <laughs> so taking opiates probably isn't the I, best. I question a cookie after six. I'm like, that. what's that going to do? And it gets to that point, doesn't it, where your um, your kind of cleanliness of how uh, goody-goody you are becomes a drug in itself. <laughs> yeah. Like, I actually find it soothes me. Like, if I'm feeling it, I'm like, no, no, Laura, you've been a really good girl today. You didn't have any chocolate, but and then, and then that, I get like a buzz off my goody-goodiness. It's fucked up. Sorry. It's but how have we up. become those people? I just really can't believe that. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah and I work every day and I don't drink I'm like wow I don't work and it's cringing because you know I would have wanted when I first wanted to get with Hugo you know he's this you know the opposite of that you know lives his lived two years in a tour bus like loves the fact that he would go days without a decent square meal or hot food or anything that wasn't beer or alcohol and now I'm just like I don't care if you think I'm the biggest square in the world like this is how I I'm have to with my it. life and function but he's seen it when it goes the other way so I think he's happy too <laughs> yeah I mean I often think about that tour bus lifestyle is everything I would absolutely hate <sighs> No way. So we're going to talk about postpartum psychosis, obviously. That's why you're here. For context, can you tell me a bit about your pregnancy and then also your labour? I had a really enjoyable pregnancy. It wasn't just like a kind of even normal pregnant, normal in speech marks. If I say that word normal, I do mean it with those quotation marks. But 
it wasn't even just normal for me. It was actually enjoyable because I think, I don't know if any of your listeners feel you resonate with this, but I just always feel like I'm a bit of a fraud. I think like the fact that I can, I'm kind of winging it all the time, getting from one month to the next, thinking, hope no one catches me out. Um, I don't really know what I'm doing or talking about, all this sort of stuff. And so with the pregnancy, I felt deliberate and purposeful and like... I knew how to take care of my body and it was just doing all the right things and felt happy and safe. Uh, I was waking up in the middle of the night because it can give you sleeplessness pregnancy mm. through backache or it just does. They say maybe it's to prepare you for the baby, whatever reason. A couple of hours a night I would be up, you know, but I enjoyed that. I felt safe. I'd watch TV, be cosy, eat peanut butter on toast, porridge and maple syrup. I felt good. I was two weeks overdue. I was showing small, again, I'm using those quotation marks, and people didn't mind telling me. People love to comment on the size of your bump, but I just thought, it's my body. I was reassured by the midwife. My mum did have a couple of conversations with me where she was like, it's just weird because I was kind of really big when I had my first, when I was pregnant with you. People told me my nose was going to blow and all these things would happen. And you kind of think you're going to look like a big swollen Mm. teapot. This wasn't happening to me. So anyway, we went, it was Valentine's Day and we went down to have an induction to get a tampon uh, thing inserted in me, which is your pessary, which is your first kind of stage of induction. So already it's intervention. Mm. You start thinking, oh, have I already kind of failed and needed help Along the way, I had up to five stretch and sweeps as well, which is, if you don't know, is like being fingered, not in a good way. Um, a bit like a kind of really painful smear test. And I went along to this corridor in, in St. Thomas's to give birth and you could just feel the exhaustion, the tension in the wards. You know, everyone was really tired. and But I didn't mind that. I kind of felt like reassured by that. Like the same way, you know, when you're on an aeroplane and all the, the air stewardesses look kind of relaxed in turbulence you're like oh okay if they're not panicking I'm not panicking and then they were like oh we've, you're lucky you've got a room sort of thing and showed me this basin that was going to be filled with a baby but I was so not ready Clemmy, to tell you this I mean I've heard stories now of women where they're like you, you know they're having a water birth and the water can't get into the bath quick enough mm. you know the baby's coming it's like the idea of it would be like me now saying to you like could you just regurgitate a lung well there's it's nothing like, happening I, Nothing is happening and I'm not feeling it. And I just, all my instinct is like, I just really want to go home Mm. now. And then I had my first ever panic attack, which I've never experienced a panic attack in my life. It was still pretty mild now that I speak to people that suffer with panic attacks. But, you know, anyone that's had a baby will know that that you keep having to have your blood pressure taken all the time. Mm. And it just started to cause caused me more and more anxiety. So I had undetected, undiagnosed preeclampsia. And what had happened is that the placenta had failed and my the, there was no nutrients getting to him from the umbilical cord. So he'd actually been starving in my womb for two weeks and no one had known. So when he was born, which in the end was by emergency caesarean we'd gone through every other form of labor epidural and another induction and to the point where he came out and he you could see that his skin his skin was hanging off him basically so he was like Mm. once a big chubby prized pumpkin and then he'd lost weight so for for me I think already I was like I just thought he'd be this big I, I just kind of thought he was hiding in the kind of reaches of my body somewhere and even though I was small he'd be all right he was going to come out nice and chunky and swollen and and then already that just set me off on the wrong path because I felt like a failure like I'd let him down that a womb is meant to be this lovely cozy place to like get big and and be safe and I had already killed him in this like torture chamber basically 
You're so much on the back foot, it's not even, you can't even comprehend it, really. Totally. I just remember the anger on his face. Oh, that He felt like it was at me. He was just, like, so distressed. And now, I see when I see him now, just the happiest, most smuggest little git you've ever come across, <laughs> I look in his eyes and I'm like, it, it, I love that about him because I, I don't want to cry. But I feel like it's that drive that he had to kind of live in the first place because it was like a, I need to eat and I need to eat badly and you're already in debt to me mum so this is what we're doing now and I that's almost set up our positions and our dynamic as a mum and son because I look at him and I'm like okay you're going to win this one mm. <laughs> but I don't mind because that's what made him win to be alive in the first place with me with my elders with Bertie I feel even now at seven and a half I sometimes hug him and just quietly say I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry because it, oh, it's yeah and I'm fortunate enough in that I've had two other labours where I did have that huge rush of oxytocin, but really similar to you, I had a, a panic attack immediately after he was born. And all I needed someone to say to me is like, you're all right, you've been through it, you're knackered, this is going to be fine. And no bugger did. And you're just there thinking, this is not how you see it on TV, is it? I, I couldn't no. think of anywhere I'd least like to be. Anyway... That's not the point. And actually, I forgot to put the context into how I came to be a small part of Laura's story. Laura and Hugo are friends with um, my sister and her boyfriend. And I met you when we were both heavily pregnant, didn't we? And yeah. uh, we were due within days of each other. So we did that thing where you're kind of keeping in touch. And actually, both of us went overdue. And then, uh, you know, I wasn't close friends with Laura, so I didn't expect to hear from her straight away. But after he was born, that this silence kind of grew because normally you'd get a photo like, oh, you know, here it is. My labour was this. And as that silence grew, I was like, something's up here. And it turns out something was very much up, wasn't it? What happened from that moment onwards? I've spoken a lot of people going through trauma or accidents or emergency situations where you become a kind of passenger. You sort of, I, I felt like I sort of levitated out of the room in a really bad 80s movie kind of way where I like left myself on the bed and my self left because it was just honestly in that labour it was just one thing after another of bad news I just couldn't it was like a joke it was like a sick joke that someone had written and as you say there would be no one born every minute or anything that I'd quite seen a labour go as bad from the, the umbilical cord being wrapped around his neck meconium upside down facing the wrong way me being small both of our heart whatever it was one thing after another but I've promised myself and when it comes to Jet and Hugo I'll never ever be such a passenger again kind of just making sure everybody else is okay to the point where I compromised my own self and my own feelings where I had no say in anything I I understand why I did that, but I'm I'm angry at, at that version mm. of me that was just going, are you okay, to the nurses? Have you eaten? Are you all right? You know, after my ninth midwife. And I think that didn't actually help me because I had no agency whatsoever. Mm. And then, then we went to the ward and because he was so starved, he if you've had an emergency caesarean, it takes a little bit longer for the milk to come in mm -hmm. because it's a different way of delivering. And then on top of that, people think, oh, you just put your baby on your breast and milk begins. <laughs> it is a battle. It's a total battle. And it's something it's the thing I can describe it to is that scene in Castaway when he's trying to make fire <laughs> and you've got two sticks and your hands are bleeding and you're trying to make fire that's what it's like trying to breastfeed for the first time baby because they're just sucking 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 raw trying to make milk come and that 
that's it. We were doing this in the ward and obviously because he was so starved, he wanted to feed for 24 hours straight. And I'm not saying that so anyone goes, oh, wow, you're a hero. It's It was complete sleep deprivation. At one point, I caught sight of my notes and I'd fed for 18 hours with a 10 minute break and then for another five hours. He was so small. That, and obviously, as you know, in the ward, the beds are really high. There's big, high, uh, shiny lino floors. So you're not allowed to like sort of let them rest on your chest while you sleep. You have to mm. get them off the breast, then put them into this big dish that they sleep in every second a different midwife is thrashing the curtain open that position this position don't do it like that hold them like this they're, they're too hot they're too cold which in one way is was an incredible crash course into motherhood you know I was like I've got every woman from different backgrounds giving me this amazing insight how fortunate but the other side was it just sent my mind into overdrive and something just snapped mm. I began by crying a lot, but trying to put on a brave face in front of Hugo because I could see he was scared and he'd obviously just witnessed everything that I had and that was his depth, you know. So when, but any time he went away, I would just call my mum and just like howl with tears. Like, you know, you're on this kind of carousel of hell where you're not wanting to wake up another mum who's got a sleeping Mm. baby. Everyone's on different clocks. Everyone's come from, some people were in there. There was a woman opposite me had lost one of her twins. So everyone's got different emotions that they're trying to deal with here. Uh, Jet also had scratches all over his head where they tried to break the waters and another but another woman had that next to me but for some weird reason we weren't talking like how you and I were talking you know it was like no. a wake in that the atmosphere in that room nobody wanted to speak and that would have helped well I was there for six days anyway I got this rare side of effect of course I did of the epidural where I was scratching to the point of mosquitoes felt like they were under my skin I mean I was scratching till I was bleeding Obviously been cut open all the rest of it. I couldn't couldn't walk or and it was the heating, it's so hot in there. Mm. Look, everyone is doing the best they can, but nobody prepares you for that. So home became this like, when I get home, everything's gonna be okay. And I just believed in that. And then we got home and everything was just not okay. It began with that kind of dread, doom like feeling that you get on a Sunday night before school. And I felt just sick and I couldn't put my finger on it. And it just escalated from there. I mean, by sounds of it, really, from the moment almost that you went into hospital or not far off, you've got, as someone who suffers with anxiety, that feeling of doom is so familiar. And yeah, once you can't shake that and that becomes your every waking moment, that spirals, I assume. So I'd never, I had, when I was little, I used to do anxious behaviours. I think now I look back, I'm like, oh, my parents were breaking up. So it was obviously that. And I was in the middle of school and exams and hormones and all the rest of it. I would do like, you know, I've got to get down the stairs before the toilet finishes flushing, or I've got to drink this glass of water before this song finishes on the radio, whatever Mm. it is. But I've never had anxiety before. I see the illness as two different things really because that was one bit but then recovering from that the medication all the rest of it I was left with all these new hosts of illnesses that I never dreamed yeah I'd hear about you know you hear about them in books and radio and TV whatever it is but but you never understand it until you experience it that was the, actually the harder bit was the clear this the kind of clearing after the shipwreck that I had to do afterwards. For people who don't know the story of the sh- of the shipwreck, you you went home and I don't know what the time frame was. I mean, I guess essentially your mental health deteriorated from the moment you got home. So yeah, so I hadn't slept for this at this point for probably a week, um, and maybe catching snatches. But realistically, whenever I think about that and think, oh, I, because people go, you must have slept. I must have, but I don't 
I can't really recall it because I was feeling the entire time. So I don't really know when that would have been. Maybe minutes here and there. Um, we came back home. Obviously, Hugo, I don't know how men can do it. They just zonk straight out of sleep. And I'm like, wow, OK. Um, and I wake Hugo up. I'm like, something's really not OK. He's like, of course, it's we've just been really scared. You know, this is how would we feel normal? I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is not OK. My illness, postpartum psychosis, is quite similar to bipolar disorder, but it's sped up. So how somebody suffers from bipolar will have episodes throughout maybe weeks or a month or a year. It feels like it, within one day you can, it's exhausting. You go from literally down the, the worst below ground level depression you've ever had and then mania. I didn't have any euphoria, livid, but I did have like uh, just a complete manic, mania, frantic racing thoughts. I, I just remember that was the first thing I was like, this is not normal. I couldn't kind of hold on one thought. I'd try and zone into the radio and like, I just couldn't. Then I started believing things my friends were saying that they were judging me, I'm kind of getting paranoid. This is how it all began. Song lyrics started to kind of play into my head so I was like is that was that kind of a message for me that sort Aww. of thing and then uh, somebody bought us a teddy bear a six foot bear <laughs> and I just knew as soon as it came I know ridiculous <laughs> Bad someone person. obviously has never had a child in their life before <laughs> and Hugo went to me god this bear's quite scary and I went no it's not because I kind of wanted to lie to myself to kind of show that I was fine with this bear like I'm really fun and crazy <laughs> I caught this like glimpse of the shiny bear's eyes and I was like that bear's got cameras in its eyes oh. 100% I had to do everything I could not to tear this bear apart and then the, it was the um the suicidal thoughts is what ramped it up in next gear because I've never, even for a second, had a suicidal thought before this. And then it, I, it was going along two valleys. So I'd have like suicidal thought because my brain sort of believed I needed to follow through a story. So it's like I meant to have met Hugo when we were kids and it was all meant to plan out like this and happen in this way. And then I was meant to have a baby and then I was meant to kill myself by suicide. That's what my story wants me to do. Then I had a rational side of my brain that would come through glim like glimmers in the day going I'm so terrified of what my brain wants me to do I need to kill myself to not let me get to that point and there was a, ever a point where you're laddering even further back where you're going this is really wrong full stop I need help or are you too far in to know that you need no, help. the whole time I'm so grateful that we are goody goodies Clemmy because I've never done a drug or anything like that I've, I've I, you know I've obviously got drunk before and I love it but um <laughs> I, I've never done a drug, so I knew straight away, I was like, this is not normal. And I, and I kept telling my sister, but it was weird. I sort of felt like a, a, a secret part of my personality was trying to, like, birth itself through me. And that was the real me, mm. that I was um, selfish and I... I and I was a villain, like a kind of Disney storybook villain. And I think that's because when I... Now that I see it all and I'm well I, I sort of feel like oh there's kind of maybe like two stereotypes of how women are sort of fed to us with when it comes to babies and we are either the really maternal perfect snow white 
you know, or you're the evil spinster that mm. is, can't make babies and properly and you've, you've fucked up basically. So I think that's kind of how I then saw myself. You think you're this lovely maternal children's book writer. Bullshit. You're actually this evil, horrible, chucky, murderous kind of person. And the reality and is we, we all oscillate between, not between being murderous, but yeah, ev- now you know, two years down the line, everyone's both, right? Uh, sorry, Clemmy, I'm actually Snow White. <laughs> sorry, um, sorry, yes. So, no. <laughs> no, absolutely. And um it's just the way I think as well, this kind of, uh, yeah, the sensationalised tabloid image of what we see, not just postnatal depression or psychosis looks like, but also anyone that's mentally unwell, that they're scary and evil and, mm. you know, they're just dark and all this. And it's there's nobody more scared than the person that's the <sighs> sufferer that's going through it. And I didn't realise that until then. So I was kind of saying, so basically, sorry, uh, to to answer your question I was playing out a narrative so the, uh, Hugo I felt like I couldn't tell the whole truth to but my sister I would say look I was making arrangements with my money and my life and my house and jet with her and telling her that something really bad was going to happen that's just how I felt that something really really bad was going to happen mm. and when I was hospitalised I was so grateful but I'll be honest with you I didn't know if I was going to a prison I didn't know if I was going to an asylum I was just so confused. I just knew, I, I kind of would have this, it all it all worked out. Obviously, I had nothing worked out. I had it all worked out and then I would forget in a single second and dismantle that whole theory I'd only just spent hours coming yeah. up with. So the the next part of the story, and it's horrible to say a story because it's your life, but um, your best friend Adele was, the I think, the person that was a step towards getting your actual official diagnosis and then in turn your the help you needed. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, so it got, it just escalated to the point where, to be honest with you, I couldn't even hide it anymore. I was trying to. So Jet was three weeks at this point and I was just totally psychotic. I had believed I'd been hypnotised. I was running around with many delusions and racing thoughts and I spoke to her on FaceTime and basically kind of handed myself into her, sort of confessed, but said everything and nothing. So I was just like, it's all out, it's all out. And she was like, what's all out and I was like everything about me the truth I mean credit to her she just dealt with her she was just so calm and she's like okay 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 she's like well I don't think you've done anything wrong but if you believe so she kind of did well to balance reassuring me but also you know letting me know that I wasn't being crazy she just said I just saw something in your eye your eyes just didn't look like you and if you've actually seen anybody in psychosis you their eyes are different. So she just got off the phone to me. I was really calm, so I didn't know anything about this and and Googled psychosis postpartum as a kind of, I mean, everyone had been searching all these things anyway, but not not these exact words together. And straight away, postpartum psychosis came up on the NHS website. It said my uh, symptoms were literally listed, you know, delusions, mania, hallucinations, anxiety, insomnia, all of these things. um, And this is a medical emergency. And do not hesitate to go to A&E. And it was just there. She just couldn't believe it. And she just rang Hugo and said, look, tell me to fuck off, basically, if you think this is not, you know, but I think this is what Laura has. And he was like, that is it. And then I was hospitalised one hour later. So, yeah, Laura, after your diagnosis, you very quickly found yourself um, in a psychiatric ward, correct? So it was a psychiatric ward, but but general. So I was, that which was even more confusing because I was just like, I've just had a baby and I was in therapy all day long from nine till five with uh, people suffering from schizophrenia, alcoholism, eating disorders, OCD. And I just thought, I this must be a Darren Brown. This must be a sick joke. How can this be where I've ended up? And it's just... 
it's not a bad lesson to learn, you know. It really was. It's not a bad reality slap because I was like, all those people, you think they're so different to you. And then you sit on that room, in that room around that circle and you're like, oh, no, actually, I'm terrified because I recognise everything that everyone is saying within myself. Did you feel like that was the right place for you to be, though, in your mind? Or could you not understand how you'd got there? No, you knew... A lot of people say that when they are hospitalised with mental illness, that the first feeling they feel is relief because you don't have to pretend anymore. You're not having to go through this. You know, you've hit such a rock bottom Mm. that maybe that's okay now that you're just complete. You don't have to hold on to any shred of anything. And you are then you admit to yourself that you have to begin again. And actually, for me, I've learned. On, in my recovery that I didn't actually have to begin again. I think my years of making sure that my friendships have gone 20 years deep with some of the people that I love the most in the world, they knew me, you know, so mm. that actually I thought I've got to begin again and I really didn't have to. I Honestly, all these things went through my mind. I need to move to another country. I need to, you know, abandon my life and start again. All these things. Also, being in the hospital actually is the most rewarding enriching thing that's ever happened to me thinking you're just not one of those people is just completely untrue you just believe you're brought up to believe there's people that have mental illness or there's people that that don't and it's just not true at all the 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 spectrum is so vast and kaleidoscopic and we are all on it and we can all Mm. relate you know you can have psychosis from losing your job from grief um from taking drugs Anything can trigger it and it's not anybody's fault. But if we're taught this, if we're told this from the beginning, you can protect yourself the best you possibly can by having the Mm. knowledge because knowledge is power. And that's how you wouldn't maybe it would certainly have turned the fear and the shame down on my illness, which would have saved me a lot of hard work on the other side if I knew this was not my fault. But do you know what the facts are is that I am well and I was Mm. only hospitalised for two weeks and so that's really short in terms of other women that have gone through this. I know your story relatively in and out and it still still blows me away every time I hear it. I always do a little section where I ask the good people of Instagram about a given subject and I ask them about postpartum psychosis and 4% of them had suffered with it and actually don't know how that ladders up to the big statistic but it's probably about spot on. I asked them to describe that experience and there was some amazing things that came back, but some that really stuck with me is they described it as a 100% loss of control. Do you think you were at the 100% mark? I would say 100% to somebody who hadn't had it, but like I didn't didn't pick up that knife, you know, and do that to myself. And I I didn't overdose. I didn't run run away. I didn't not, not take the medication because I believed it was poison, all those things. And you know what, Clemmie, like you're the same, like with what you're saying with your, the way you take care of yourself with whether it's the alcohol or um, not drinking, not having caffeine, whatever it is, that instinct when you know your body so well, mm. you know, I, I knew this sty on my eye was coming before it's even showed its reared its ugly head because you can fit, you know yourself. Yeah. And um, I had such a strong like sewage pipe of sanity that was running underneath me the whole time, just kept dragging me back onto track going come on or you know that's not true you know you know you know you know so no not a hundred percent but i i think i was was um caught just in time going back to the the, uh, people of instagram i asked them what their advice would be to other people and i think this is what you've touched on but one person said believe the tiny bit inside you that says you need help totally i cry like 
probably once a week, you know, from and it will it's not from sadness, it's relief when I do a really normal thing. One, my friends laugh about it now, well, obviously before lockdown, but not long ago we went to a food market and I hadn't put my card in a card machine <laughs> for like a really long time and typed my PIN number in and I just burst into tears at the cash point and she just went to me, no, not crying because of postpartum psychosis. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're just like, it's just that will just, it will just suddenly hit me when I do a really mundane, normal thing that gives, it's usually something that's very independent for me and like something that I don't need Hugo to kind of do because I'm shaking or quivering or yeah. scared and um and and that's been I mean I've been really well for us and solid stable for a long time but um it's those things it's not even like when we got married it does it's not even those things it's the normal things I mean I think everybody because of the experience of lockdown can access that a little bit now the things that we all long for are not what you think you long for right Absolutely. And the illness has informed me and bolstered me for this, what's happening right now, this climate. I feel like I can cope so much better than what I would have before, Mm. because I'm like, I was already downsizing my world anyway. I was already going, okay, I will take, if, if I get to the other side of this illness and I just have Hugo, me and Jet standing and a roof over our heads, then I'm going to take that. And so like having the book out, having this conversation with you, even managing to you know, see my friends and do those things again. They're all massive bonuses. I certainly didn't expect to be able to write creatively again. You know, I just never thought I'd trust my brain ever again. So these are all just bonuses, like cherries on the cake, really. Which is a gift, right? To be able to have that much perspective, I think. Definitely. And having this learning curve at in my fir- early 30s is just such a big blessing because I'm like, this is going to inform me for my whole life I truly believe and Jet's gonna hopefully know how to take care of him too and Hugo it's it's taught Hugo how to take care of himself and actually now my friends like I just it's helped me I'm such a better friend so the the thing is with your book on the one hand your book is like the, the worst imaginable situation but on the other it is so relatable to so many people I think I think it is the story of of that baptism of fire into motherhood. Of course, most people's aren't ex- aren't that extreme. And actually, I asked my audience, and forty six percent of them felt as if they had suffered with either pre or postnatal mental health wow. issues. I mean, that that's huge. That's astonishing because, and I, and I, even when the facts come out, the statistics and they say one in four, I don't even believe that because the amount of I can't mm. really think of one friend that hasn't gone, I know what you mean. It wasn't there, but it was there. Motherhood changes absolutely everything about what you were, what you know, your job, your relationship, your body, your mind. And so that in itself is a huge transition. But there's a whole thing. It's really difficult for guys too. And that was the case for Hugo, I'm sure. Yeah, so Hugo got... Um, I guess in its simplest form, it was a form of PTSD where I had recovered and I still had to have checkups and meetings with my psychiatrist, like follow up meetings. And they they would always be put in the diary with with chunks because as I was, I, I was probably tapering off my medication longer than what I was actually even on it for. So it's quite a long, drawn out, careful process. And then one of them, normal meeting and Hugo was just he just had slipped off. He was His illness, I guess, came in the form of 24-hour long panic attacks. He would wake up with a panic attack if he managed to sleep and it would just 
shadow him for the full day. He just felt constantly on edge, like something really bad was going to happen. And the psychiatrist was so amazing. He was just like, yeah, this is, it happens very often when somebody's been sick in whatever way and one's had to lean on the other partner. When it's their time to relax, they just can't switch off. And and he, I mean, it was the quickest breakdown of all time. It lasted about <laughs> two weeks, but it was really frightening. And But actually everything that I had learned helped me so much. And what has been so amazing is since that... Three of Hugo's friends have told them that they had postnatal depression from their partners, that they had never diagnosed. They felt like they couldn't tell anybody, but they had lived with it and it had changed their lives. And they're like, maybe some of them are three, four, five years deep having a child, but have just lived alongside this and didn't feel like they could say. So it definitely is a thing because it is trauma. Some of the things men see in that time and just have to kind of get on with it. Absolutely not. It, It affects everybody. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? I guess this, you and Hugo both having a bit of a shared experience, though, I, might help you to both do things to protect your mental health now. Like, I know oh you're God. both really into fitness, or you were yeah. pre-lockdown. Okay, so an interesting way to look at something bad happening, trauma, is to be curious about it. Is actually mm-hmm. instead of going, I'm gonna, I'm so scared of this thing, I'm going to shrink from it and pretend it doesn't happen. That's not going to help you. You know, you always see if you watch a horror film, there's the, the character that runs and hides or runs up whatever, or there's the one that turns and turns the flashlight to this monster and sees it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that and you, you turn the volume down on this fear, and that's what we both did. We both just got really good at understanding not just our brains but fascinated with it with listening to Mm. other people's stories and learning the best we can and when you learn something and you see it as science and chemicals and emotions and hormones shooting around and not monsters Mm. and witches and the devil you're like okay this is nothing to and then you can almost kind of manage it a bit like a speedometer where you can like oh okay see it's getting a bit this is happening a bit too much now so what can I do to bring that down and you can kind of balance between having your feet on the accelerator and the brake where you can kind of manage it. This is how science can really benefit your mood, your day-to-day life. And exercise and food and all those sleep all comes into play with those things. But it's just like, oh, why was I scared of that? Actually, this has helped me. Endorphins become so addictive, don't they? You're like, what? Yeah. I can go and work up a sweat and then feel absolutely amazing. Yeah, and it's got to the point where, you know, before I mean, just using drink as an example, I'd be like, I feel stressed today. Oh, well, I'm going to see blah, blah, tonight and have a glass of wine, so I'll be all right. Mm. Now I'm like, I feel stressed. Oh, once I get back from the gym, I know I'll be all right. Once I, I get know. back from my run, I know I'll be all right. And that's just like, and it doesn't help, you know, when you're in the throes of terror and sleep is out of your reach and you can't get rest and you 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 can't really have that oh, uh, a good night's sleep will sort you out. It's like, oh, will it? <sighs> yeah, thank you so much. I know that. I just can't get there. So exercise uh, can become your friend in all of that, you know. What would you say the positives are out of all of this experience? There are so many positives to my illness. Like, I mean, we're, apart from what we've, I guess we've just spoken about, but I think I'm the, the most effective I've ever been on the planet, probably ever, not just Mm -hmm. because of retelling this story and having no shame. It was like a conscious decision. I once sat there and I was like, oh, I have a choice actually with this. It doesn't happen overnight, but I was like, I can choose to feel shame about this and guilt. That's actually up to me. All Mm. this is a projection I'm feeling for everybody else, but it's up to me if I go, I'm going to feel that or that. So I kind of, as soon as I did that, I was like, oh my God, this weight's lifted. And now that kind of happens with everything. I sent the other day a kind of moderately 
sexy picture of myself to Hugo to kind of be like, we just got married. We didn't get a honeymoon. He was working in a studio. I was in the living room. Got a baby constantly, you know, yeah. pissing everywhere. I was like, I'm going to send him a... And I sent it by accident to my next door neighbour. Amazing. Picture. And... um. <laughs> I didn't realise. And then she, two weeks after, sent me a picture of the book going, oh, it's arrived. And then I just saw the picture above <gasps> and I was like, oh, so she never I, said am, anything. I am dead. Um, <laughs> and she and she just, I, I, I'm friends with her daughter. And she said, oh, I just saw that it wasn't for me and just discreetly put it to one side. But she, I just don't have shame. I'm so rehearsed now in letting go of shame. I'm just like, that is hilarious. Like, I, yeah. I just don't mind. That's helped me just Getting to that, as you say, death of the small talk, getting to the point of it with all my friends and not judging them and not saying those perfectly well-intentioned but naive things like, oh, think on the bright side, you know, try and mm. find the positives. There's always silver linings. It's like things happen for a reason. Things don't happen for a no. reason. Shit just fucking sometimes happens and it's really difficult. Yeah. And all that positive thinking, I used to do <laughs> all of that. Just because you have a sign above your bed going, sleep well, it does not mean you're going to sleep well. Um, so bye to all of that, which has just helped me again so much. Actually, do you know what really helped me was accepting it? And you feel... If I accept something, does that mean I'm being a victim? Am I rolling over and taking it like a little mug? Like, oh, okay, I accept it. It's like, no, but actually acceptance is wisdom because there are things you cannot change. I cannot change the fact that I got unwell. But what I can do is change right now. Accepting that, that takes courage and wisdom. I don't need to go running around blaming the NHS, blaming anyone that got this wrong because mm. I accept everybody. I just, I think it's the the most positive thing you can do for yourself is go, I accept that everybody's probably just trying to do their best. Yeah. And that goes for everybody. Everyone's got shit going on. Every single person has got probably something quite major brewing or they've just come through it or it's on the horizon. And so we have to... I hate that, oh, you have to be kind, sounds such a cliche, but it is true. Totally. It really is. If anyone is feeling triggered to postpartum psychosis, is there any places that you'd recommend them seeking help or researching? Yeah, Action on Postpartum Psychosis, APP, which I realised the other day is in the middle of the word happy. APP are working full time round the clock to support but to um, also educate and raise awareness on psychosis but also they do a lot of work with postnatal depression as well and if you go onto their website they've got really clearly marked kind of other useful links they've got such an amazing page of charities that cover uh, most acute illnesses as well but again the conversation I'm kind of happy, um, having is not just because my illness is really acute but it bleeds into so many other illnesses so mind is an amazing charity but also you can do so much work where you are right now as well like reaching out to your friends and family once you kind of have the guts to start that conversation mm. um, and do not be afraid uh, something I can stress is even though this lockdown is happening you must still go to A&E. Yes. You must still take that seriously and call 999. The services are still open to take those illnesses. They, they're still working and mother and baby units are still open. So make sure you don't, don't try and hide it or think you're being a nuisance because you're absolutely not. That's very, yeah. very good advice. Where can people find you? And is there anything you want to shout about? So you can just find me on the normal socials. I'm Laura Lee Cruel. That's my real name, you know, like a country western singer, Laura Lee. Did you know? Is that? it really? Yeah. 
That's really Lord, cool. Lee. But yeah, I don't know why it dropped off. I just thought it was, ha- it just annoyed me when I was younger. But and there, um, so that, and then shout about, um, yes. So there's another book on my illness. If you have read my one or you want something. Well, no, like- I think first of all, you really need to do the full oh. plug of your book. Oh, so my book's called yeah. What Have I Done? And it's just come out with Penguin Random House in hardback, but it's also available. I've recorded it on audio as well, where I cry my eyes out basically the whole way through it. We recorded it with this man, Chris, who was just like, whoa, to the point where he actually came in and hugged me like during the recording. <laughs> and I was a bit like, you know, in streets, I'm all right, I'm all right, don't touch me, don't touch me, I'm all right. That, and then that's that's available and it's available on ebook as well. I've never had hardback before. So this has been, and I just want to say some people might think, oh God, I'm in lockdown, Laura, shut up. I don't want to know about scary this is too heavy I just want to say now if you are in thinking like that I have deliberately wanted the book to be really hopeful and about how you can blossom as a person from something bad happening to you too so don't be scared by it but another book that I read just recently which came out just before the lockdown is called Inferno by Mm. Catherine Cho she's had a slightly different story to mine and the book is really poetic and engaging and it's also about her experience of postpartum psychosis so I'd love to shout about her book too oh I think that's very nice to shout about other people no one's ever done that before speaks volumes about you last question Going back to the name of the podcast, who would you have an honest conversation with? It could be a younger version of yourself, a troll, a celebrity, a friend, anyone. Who would it be and what would you say? How do I say that, like, I feel like I'm the most honest I've probably ever been. Uh, It makes me feel less alone just sounds like a cliche but I feel like I went to a house of horrors right the only way I can feel less scared of that is to say to bring to show everybody the photographs of the house of horrors and tell everybody over and over again about the house and horrors to the point that they're there with me makes me feel so less alone I feel like I have never been more honest so I don't really have that craving Um, yeah you don't need yeah you're not you're not you're not editing yourself yeah and that's why the book has saved my life because it's helped me like see this maybe as a piece of fiction. And I'm almost bored of it, which I never thought I'd get to that. I thought I'd always be scared of this and my well, nightmares were so bold. I think Hugo will breathe a sigh of relief if you're no longer <laughs> talking about it to anyone I mean, who'll listen. I mean, I already got a text from him while I was talking to you saying, turn it down, you're so loud. (laughs) (laughs) He's just hearing your voice around the house. He rolls his eyes. I mean, I saw that once and they said there's like, um, behind every great woman is a man rolling his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) It's not easy to... To be in a long-term yeah. relationship with a woman with a lot, a lot to say and a lot to I think about. No, who wants to marry a chandelier? <laughs> yes. Oh my word! I, I can't. That, that feels like three hours ago. I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you so much. It's so nice talking to you, Clemmy. It's been amazing. And thank you for all your your support and everything you've given me and the book through this whole time. Thank you. Uh, it's been um, what a journey. I know. So that's it. I've been Clemmy Telford, and this excellent humour has been Laura Lee Dockrell. And this has been Honestly Podcast. Thank you for listening. Please do rate, review, subscribe and tell your mates about it. Laura, you're a star. Thank you for listening to another episode of Honestly. If you found this week's episode interesting, which I hope you did, I'd love to know your thoughts. So please do give me a rating or review and even better, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get each week's episode delivered straight to you.